when uh, Francis meets, I put it on already, Doc. Oh, sorry. Um, it's on. Um, so if any of you have seen the movies and, um, and you'd like to join us, um, do come. It's, we're, nobody's reading the books. I'm not asking anybody to read the books. We're, we're not going to work off a text. We're responding to the movies. So we can't go through lines and talk about them. We have to talk about the whole movie, um, which is what we did last night. So if, you, if you've enjoyed the movie and would like to join us, come. Okay. That's it. Um, let's start. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Are those classes online? I mean, you know, can we go back and look at it later? Can or listen to it later, not look, look at, at it. Sorry, look, say, say what, what, look back at what? Can we listen later to your St. Francis class on Tolkien? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, we usually, it usually takes a day, after, we wait until the Monday, Tuesday classes are over, so by Wednesday or Thursday, the audios are up, generally Great. speaking. So you, you should be able to access it um, tomorrow or the next day. We, we try to get them up right away. So... Okay, let's let's start. Um, I'm I'm so looking forward to doing the Chaucer with you. I, I want to say why in a minute, but let's let's do our prayers and our our lyric, and then we'll start Chaucer. Um, Connie's asked for prayers, so I've got her on my mind. Um, I'm going to pray for all the people on the road on which she's driving right now, because as far as I know, she's she's got a camera on and she's driving the car. I'm praying for all the drivers around her. And, oh, the other thing I wanted to say, sorry, and I'm glad because I just saw Melody laugh. Melody's moved. She and her husband have moved to this place. What is it, Sunrise Beach? I, I don't know what to say about these people who moved to places like Sunrise Beach. <laughs> but it's just, just how it sounds. Yeah, she just... Um, I'd like to ask everybody in our prayers tonight, I, I'll include it, but know that she's moved. I, I, I feel a little bit torn, ripped, and I'm being really seriously. Even though we never saw each other, I mean, she's a, she's a, she was a, um, a St. Francis or um, Elizabeth Anseton par parishioner. I, she's moved out of the area, and I feel like she's taken a part of me with her. Um, um, but... Um, she's still here. I'm glad she's here. I'd like to ask everybody to pray for her and her husband and her family that the move goes well. My own personal belief is that moves are always hard. We uproot a whole way of life. You know, when you, if you've been in a house for five, ten years and you move, it, it's just not a physical move. You know, you put your roots down in a place, um, you pick them up. I, I always think there's more to moves than you know, than what appears to be on the surface. So I'd ask all of you to pray for her and her husband and their move and their family and um, and Melody. I just, God's blessing on, you know, all that you're, whatever new horizons are there for you, I just, I hope everything goes well. Thank you. Yeah. You said it, earlier you didn't want to lose me. I don't want to be lost. Yeah. So I appreciate good, it. Good, I, You are a dear, dear person to me. I hope you know that. Um, okay, any prayers? Any prayers? Um, this is Melody again. Um, my, uh, our dear friends lost their brother. His name's Joe Gorman, and he passed away last week. So we'd like to pray for his soul. 
what how old Melody and, and what um, happened? Joe was sixty-seven, I believe. What happened? Just we don't know. He passed away in his sleep. Mm, gosh. But they they had been some there had been some family fights and the family wasn't in a good place and that's why it was just so devastating for him to pass before all that got worked out. Yep, yep, so. yep, 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 yep. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, Joe Gorman, anybody else? Uh, Anne, you had somebody? Yes. I'd like to pray for the daughter of a close friend. She is, Erin is 29 weeks pregnant with twin boys. One of them is failing and it's bringing down his other, his brother as well. I'd like to, to pray for the babies, for the families, and for the doctors. Say the mother's name again. Aaron. Aaron. Okay, and twin boys? Two boys? Yes. God, God. Boy. I always think, I mean, if I, I'm assuming most of you will have some sense of this. Last night when we were talking about Fellowship of the Ring, one of the parishioners um, made the comment that she had not read the book or seen the movie and she did everything she can to avoid it because she knew there was violence in it and and I was remarking sort of facetiously but seriously because I know she took it seriously that if you looked at the work that we've done there's almost not a work that we've done that doesn't have some violence in it. I myself believe that's crucial because I think the cross is at the center of what we're doing. If we're looking for Christ the place to go is there. Um, we just did The Violent Bear Away at St. Francis and um, Flannery O'Connor, those of you who've not read her won't know this, those of you who have will know that um, she works in what she calls the grotesque comedy. It's a word we could use to describe Dante, particularly in the Inferno, grotesque comedy. And I made the comment that the, that the most perfect example of grotesque comedy is the cross. That may sound strange to you, but it is. Grotesque comedy. There is no more perfect illustration of grotesque comedy than a god who is infinite, invulnerable, immortal, who went to a cross, took on our nature, became mortal, and did it knowing that he would die because it was only in dying that our sins could be put away. So it's the most horrible image. I mean, I, I'm, I, I don't mean to offend anybody in this. If you look at the Holocaust or the ethnic cleansing, whether it's in Germany or Russia, where millions of people are killed, they don't compare to, a, I know this is going to sound shocking, they don't compare to killing God. We put an infinite, immortal being, the source of all of our lives, on a cross and killed him. So there's no act more horrible, none will ever be more horrible than that, no matter what takes place in history. And there's no act that will ever be as beautiful. Felix Coppa, blessed sin. The, is there any other way of expressing the depth of God's love or the love of humans who participate in that than in that act? It's extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. That's why... Uh, um, um, Oedipus 
to me, is a, an extraordinarily beautiful creature at the end of Oedipus Rex, just when he blinds himself. You know, I mean, grotesque comedy takes us to the heart of suffering with the idea that of revealing some great grace there. And um, we, we know this in the context of a world, the modern world, that tries to do everything it can to get rid of suffering. The claim of the modern world is if we just have enough technology, we can do away with problems and suffering. Um, so, um, anyway, hold that, hold that in mind. It's, um, when I think about the prayers that we offer so often for the people we care about, I think about it and it, it just seems to go beyond the literature that we read because it's literature, but so much of the literature we read is about a suffering that reveals something. It's Hopefully it's helped everybody see Christ a little bit more. Any other, sorry for the, any other prayers? Um, all those who who joined us a little bit late, um, I, I told everybody that I talked with Father and I talked or I put in a call to Allison about getting us into a room. I'm hoping we can do that soon. Um, I'm going to ask that we not do it unless we can do virtual and live together because I don't want to lose people who are nervous about getting into a room. But I'd like to go back to a room because I know there's some people who don't or can't come online. Um, Mary is one of them. I, she's a dear, dear person. I've, I've missed her and it would be so good to see her again. But anyway, right now we're, we're working at getting us back into a room. If we do, the first thing that I want to do is have a dinner. So um, just to let you know, it's one of the first things we'll plan. And if it's, I don't know that, you know, I, I, I don't like doing this, but I'm partly glad to do it, Melody. I, I mean, to put pressure on you to make a trip, you know, but if we can schedule it around a trip so that you can come, I'll do everything I can to protect that because it, it wouldn't be the same without you. So just know we'll, we'll try to do a dinner, okay? Okay, um, in the name of the thought, wait, Anne, yeah, Aaron, yeah, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The readings this week, Lord, you know, God, you know these words. You told, the, the disciples scattered um, at the cross. They all ran, um, even Peter, and you knew they would, except for John. They all scattered in fear. At the end of your life, in the last discourses before you left, you, you told the disciples that you had conquered everything, you'd overcome everything. Um, you conquered death, um, you conquered fear, um, and you asked them to go out and baptize in your name everywhere. So they scattered again, except this time they didn't scatter in fear. They went boldly, trusting that no matter what happened, even if they faced death, they would be okay. Those were some of your last words to them before you returned to the Father. And I think, um, if we think about this, one of the reasons you return, because you presumably you could have stayed here, is that by going back and taking your place next to the Father, 
you would recover your infinite immortal nature, you would be one in being with him, infinite, immortal, infinitely giving, except mysteriously, I, our minds can't get around it, you carried a human body, you took our nature back with you and united it with your divine nature and, and invited us to share in it. So from that place, you could watch over everybody on the earth. You weren't limited by time and space any longer. You left um, so that you could be everywhere at once, offer yourself. That's why we can believe in the Eucharist, that's why we can practice adoration. Um, that we know that what's in front of us is not confined to time and place, although it is for us. It's universal, infinite. Um, that's at the center of our faith. So whatever goes, and Boethia Chaucer is going to underscore that we have every reason to be happy. Most of all when things go bad. Most of all then. So I ask for a special grace for all of us to bring that to our world. No matter what goes on, that's our faith. Help each of us to have the courage to live it, to be glad, particularly when it's hard, um, to bring you to each other, most of all in our families, in our marriages, with our children. Um, help us to do that, please. And help us to find a strength in um, these people we're writing. Um, the, the, for the next couple of weeks, Chaucer, um, because to me he, he exemplifies the, the joy at the center of our faith. I ask for a special prayer for Connie um, on her trip. Um, she and her husband watch over them, keep them safe on their travels, genuinely keep them safe. Help, help Connie to pay attention while she's on the road. <laughs> I say that right now. Um, help her to stay focused, to pay attention. Um, I'm so glad she's with us. She's always a joy. Um, her daughter is still struggling um, with, I um, can't remember, lymph nodes or um, infections, boils or something in her neck. Um, heal her daughter. Help, help her daughter. And the doctors do um, what they should to help cure that. Surround her daughter with your protection. Heal her. Please see Connie and her husband to their destination and see them safely home again on their journeys. I ask for a special prayer for Joe Gorman. I hope I've got that name right. Receive him into your kingdom. Um, um, when Suzanne's died, dad died. It was in similar circumstances. Um, her, her mom and dad were young and just starting out on the marriage and it was a difficult death. It's hard to lose somebody in the midst of a struggle. The, the potential for grief and guilt and regrets. I ask, receive Joe into your kingdom. Um, wash away his sins. Um, if there's a purgatory, let her for his help. My great prayer right now is for those he's left behind to, to make a peace, to genuinely let go of him. Do not feel recriminations or guilt or... These things happen. We fight. We argue. We, we, can't lock, we can't lock ourselves in circumstances like that and fix them. So release them from that hold. Um, release them. 
um, let them know he's gone into a better place and to not hold any difficulties against themselves or him. It's a part of our human nature. It's part of what we let go of when we die. So watch over them, surround them with your blessings, let them know a healing in his passing. Please don't let any of them get stuck there. Ask for a special blessing, um, protection, and healing for Aaron and her, um, the two children she carries in her womb. Um, protect them. Um, help, help them to survive healthy. Um, let your will be done, whatever it is. But um, help them um, if our prayers can carry that request. Um, and be with the family um, in this trial as they're all awaiting the outcome of it. And tonight I'd, um, I'd like to ask a special prayer for Suzanne and me. Um, we've been at this for a long time. Um, she laughs at me when I talk about this, so you all can laugh too, but we've been at it a long time. But I, I'm so aware that we're coming to the end of things, so our age is showing. You're all aware of it from the discussions. <laughs> My mind is going everywhere, but I ask for a special prayer for the two of us, um, and I ask a special prayer for me. Um, the spiritual struggles, I'd be grateful for your prayers. We, we tend to pray for each other. I'd like to ask for a prayer um, for me, and you know, as we're approaching this last part of our lives. So, we offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Okay, Connie, I'm counting on your prayers for me this time, young lady. Oh, you're done. Okay, I want to pick up with the um, Robinson poem. Um, yeah, before we start, let me just pick up here and then I'll do a quick review of Dante and then we'll start Chaucer. Um, one of the reasons I'm enjoying this is because it's, a, it's such a contrast to the very, I don't know to call it, severely good, you know, world we've been in in Dante's um, Paradiso. That's a splendid seraphic realm of light and, you know, um, beyond the world. Um, in this poem, we're we're returning to earth in a in a very ordinary sort of way and remember the poems um, spoken from the point of a 12 year old boy who's looking at these two uncles that whom he loves who are both aging and who are looking at each other the way Suzanne and I look at each other more and more these days and you know um, what's wrong with you and God you're getting old and why did I come in here and why are you here? And I mean, these, you know, it's just, it's so much more a part of our life right now. So it's a boy um, describing an event with these two men, but sort of permeating the whole poem is, is the sense that something more is going on. And what we'll discover is, is its death, that these two men are coming to their end. And so there's a, um, a, a tender kind of irony to the spirit of the poem. That, that I've been enjoying, and I love this poem, so I, um, I wanted all of us to be able to do this together. So let me pick up on, um, on the third 
section, yeah. Remember, the young boy has met with Isaac and they're setting off to Archibald at a time of harvesting. And it's clear that even though the boy's young and 12, Isaac is out distancing him. He's an old man and has more strength than the boy does. And, and there's a sense that he's, a, that the old man has a sense of irony about things that he doesn't. Um, but it, it just makes clear the tenderness between the two, even though there's this great difference between them. So let me pick up with the th third section. Yeah, um, on our copy, if, if you're all using the copy I sent you, it's page four in the middle of the page. He ends, that was a joke to Isaac, and it pleased him very much, and that pleased me, for I was 12 years old. At the end of an hour's walking after that, the cottage of old Archibald appeared. Little and wide and high on a smooth round hill it stood, with hackmatacks and apple trees before it, and a big barn roof beyond. And over the place trees, house, fields, and all, hovered an air of still simplicity and a fragrance of old summers, the old style that lives the while it passes. I dare say that I was lightly conscious of all this when Isaac, of a sudden, stopped himself, and for the long first quarter of a minute gazed with incredulous eyes, forgetful quite of breezes and of me, and of all else under the scorching sun but a smooth cut field. Faint yellow in the distance, I was young, but there were a few things that I could see, and this was one of them. Well, well, said he. And Archibald would be surprised, I think, said I, but all my childhood subtlety was lost on Isaac, for he strode along like something out of Homer, powerful and awful on the wayside, so I thought. Also, I thought how good it would be so near the end of my short-legged endeavor to keep the pace with Isaac for five miles. Hardly had we turned in from the main road when Archibald, with one hand on his back, and the other clutching his huge-headed cane, came limping down to meet us. Well, 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 said he. And then he looked at my red face, and streaked with dust and sweat, and shook my hand, and said it must have been a right smart walk we had that day from Tilbury Town. Those of you won't, I mean, you won't know this, but um, Tilbury Town was a mythic city in which Robinson placed so many of the characters that he dealt with in his poetry. So it's a little bit like Faulkner's Jefferson City. It's this mythic place where he views things. So when you read Robinson, even if you're dealing with individual characters, you, you can't read them without having the sense that all of this takes place within a community. And you, it's easy to forget that, but you shouldn't. This is, people are rooted in communities. Um, so he said that we may have had that day from Tilbury Town. Magnificent, said Isaac, and he told about the beautiful west wind there was which cooled and clarified the atmosphere. You must have made it with your legs, I guess, said Archibald. And Isaac humored him with one of those infrequent smiles of his which he kept in reserve, apparently, for Archibald alone. But why, said he, should Providence have cider in this world, if not for such an afternoon as this? And Archibald, with a soft light in his eyes, replied that if he chose to go down cellar, there he would find eight barrels, one of which was newly tapped, he said, and to his taste an honor to the fruit 
Isaac approved most heartily of that, and guided us forthwith as if his venerable feet were measuring the turf in his own dooryard, straight to the open rollway. Down we went out of the fiery sunshine to the gloom, grateful and half sepulchre, where we found the barrels like eight potent sentinels close ranged along the wall. You can't miss the sense of something dark and tomb-like in those lines. And he'll pick it up again in a moment with the image of the cricket, because so often crickets in, in literature are associated with death. So they descend into this gloom um, with these barrels like sentinels. From one of them a bright pine spile stuck out alluringly, and on the black flat stone just under it glimmered a late spilled proof that Archibald had spoken from unfeigned experience. There was a fluted antique water glass close by, and in it, prisoned or at rest, there was a cricket of the brown soft sort that feeds on darkness. Isaac turned him out and touched him with his thumb to make him jump, and then composedly pulled out the plug with such a practiced hand that scarce a drop did even touch his fingers. Then he drank and smacked his lip with a slow patronage and looked along the line of barrels there with a pride that may have been forgetfulness that they were Archibald's and not his own. I never twist a spigot nowadays, he said, and raise the glass up to the light, but I thank God for orchards, and that glass was filled repeatedly for the same hand. Before I thought it worthwhile to discern again that I was young, and that old age with all his woes had some advantages. Now Archibald said I, when we stood outside again, I have it in my mind that I shall take a sort of little walk. That begins the fourth section. We'll, we'll, we'll pick up that. So we'll do the fourth section next time, and then I think we'll, fi yeah, we'll finish it the week after. So we're on this journey with this little boy, 12-year-old boy, dealing with these, this old couple. Okay. Um, I want to just briefly recall what we did with um, Dante, and I know this is ridiculous because there's no way to do Dante in three minutes, but you've read him now, and so you'll be able to appreciate some of the things here. Um, a couple of things. Remember that it started with Dante emerging from a dark wood. He was in a world of sin, lost and made that turn to try to straighten out his life. And he wants to go up that mountain. He sees the sun. Allegorically, I think it's an image of God's light and um, light answering to light. That God made the human soul to be with him. Um, Dante has darkened his own, but he's answered. He wants to go back. It's like the longing of the immortal soul to return to its maker. So it's natural for him to climb that mountain, but once he does, he finds he's beaten back. He can't do it alone. Um, you know that he's beaten back by the three beasts, and, and he's come back, and Virgil greets him at the bottom. He was sent by Beatrice and Lucia and Mary. Um, and um, what we experience then with Virgil is um, all the levels of hell and divided into three classes. Um, the incontinent, the violent, the fraudulent. So as we, um, as we join Virgil and Dante in that journey, we go to the very depths of the human soul. 
what we learn to see is ourselves. That at the center of our soul is, is this fraud. That um, one of the effects of our sinning against God, breaking a law, his commandment, was to carry that instinct in us. So there's something in us defiant. It's not, a, it's not because of sex, drinking. It's there is in us this instinct to defy, to break a law just for the pure sake of breaking a law because we don't want to be bound by a law. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We want to do what we want to do. Um, <clears throat> we, if, um, we've just started the Fellowship of the Ring, and if you know anything about that movie, you know that the ring images that. Anybody who puts that ring on has that power. Um, so we, we took the journey with Dante and Virgil through hell. When they emerged, they emerged on the same mountain, except now Dante can climb it because he's learned to see his own sins. And what we've learned to see is that the people in hell are there because they refuse God's mercy. They broke a law, that's what they wanted, that's what they've got. The condition of hell, and I think this is probably the most important thing to remember, the condition of hell is what somebody's chosen, that they want that thing, whatever it is, more than they want God. So it's that thing that imprisons them. That's what they'll get. So eternity, which sounds like a vast, infinite thing, gets reduced to this one act, whether it's lust or gluttony or... Okay, is everybody following me? If anybody has a question, please stop. But we saw that scene after scene after scene that people had, had become so fixed by a desire of wanting something um, at the cost of breaking a law, their own nature, or a law of nature, that that became their whole mode of being. All the contrapassos show that. Remember that um, with one of the most important things to remember about hell, clearly one of the most important things is, the virtuous pagans are there, not being punished, they're there because they lack faith, hope, and charity. What Dante's showing us, unlike a modern Protestant, is that man was not completely corrupted. That's a Protestant belief, not a Catholic. Man was wounded, but his innate goodness remained intact. It was just wounded, badly wounded. We call the effects of that concupiscence. And I'm trusting, I've said this before, I'm trusting everybody knows that concupiscence can be overwhelming. You know, trying to do away with our sins, and I, I know you've all struggled with it, that you know, you struggle like mad to do away with your sins and they're still there. That's the effect of concupiscence, of, of letting, giving into a weakness that can become a habit. So hell reveals that condition. God put nobody there. They're in that condition eternally because time stops. That's eternity, that present, whatever that condition is. Um, when they get to purgatory, they begin the ascent up the mountain to correct those sins. So what we find in purgatory are sinners who, uh, who repent, who confess their sins, who, who acknowledge they're in sin, but who, unlike the sinners in hell, want to change. So they're asking for God's mercy and receive it. They enter in purgatory and begin the work of correcting themselves. The principle of purgatory is, is the sinners are learning to order their emotions. 
That's the whole task of a Catholic. St. Augustine called it Ordo... Um, no, it's... Um, what's the word for um, lawful? Ordinate. Uh, yeah, Amoris. Um, um, Amoris Ordinate. Um, ordinate emotions. That we have to learn to make our emotions lawful. Loves. All of our emotions. So that we can love properly. So the whole work of purgatory, the whole work of hell is is a work of learning to see our sins, because if, if we don't see them, how can we correct them? That's why we need teachers, that's why we need each other. And the whole work of purgatory is taking on those sins with the help of God's grace. So everybody in purgatory is gladly picking up their faults and correcting them. And that's why purgatory is um, a joy. Um, you know, people are glad to be returning to God. When we got to um, the end of Purgatory, we returned to that forest with which the story began. Dante emerged from the world, a forest, remember he came out of that dark forest. Here we're returned to the forest, except this is not the world, this is the top of Purgatory. They're returning to Eden, that forest, that Edenic condition that man had before the fall. So they return to that Edenic condition. It's at that point Virgil falls away because there's nothing more he can do. He can't go on in faith because that's, um, that, that's something denied him or he denied. Um, but it's at that point from that Edenic forest, that garden world, that Beatrice picks up Dante and the two of them go through the heavens. And step by step we enter into that um, heavenly world that we know is radically different from the world in which we know it here. And I want to say this now because it's very much on my mind. I've had it because we're doing Tolkien and we're entering into a, um, a fantasy kind of world there. If you look at Hemingway or Camus or Faulkner or any of the great modern writers, you'll find all of them working in a world defined in terms of science. Time and space. You know that those, we didn't do this. God. Sorry, in Francis, we did Dostoevsky and Faulkner and Hemingway, but you, you enter into a world that's largely defined in terms of science and time and space, and the modern artist holds himself to those laws at the expense of admitting there's something more. So we're confined to that world. Tolkien breaks out of it. Dante shatters it in the um, Paradiso, because you know... Um, transhumanized, they enter the moon, they look at the sun, they're not blinded, they anticipate each other's thoughts, they indwell, that you enter a world available only through faith. That's not a world that Virgil knew. And it, we, what we enter is this world that's um, infinitely expanded spiritually, intellectually, so it's much richer. Faith does not close a person in. What it does is begin with the rational world and enlarge it. So faith shouldn't cut people off. It introduces them to a mystery. And the more they pursue it, the, the more they see. So their faith is strengthened by reason. That's what Virgil does for Dante. She keeps giving him explanations of things that are supersensible, beyond the sensible as we know it. And we got to that point, remember, when they enter the Imperium, and there's that wonderful quote that, that means so much to me, and, and I think Connie, 
Remember there, um, it said, there neither nearness nor distance, there neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God rules immediately, the laws of time and space don't apply. So from hell, um, in which things are terribly confined and locked in, we, we move through purgatory to a world in which time and space does not apply as we know it here. Um, people, it, remember, um, I think Mike quoted it once when we were doing it, remember when we looked at Guido at the level of envy, and Guido said the problem with people is they see things too much in terms of earthly goods, material goods, so that the more people there are, the less each person gets. Remember, that was one of the definitions of envy. Whereas in, in, in um, the Imperium, you enter a world in which the more people there are, the more it's like the multiplication of the fishes. Everybody increases by that one person's presence. How can you, de how can you describe the joy of that? It's not static. People tend to think of heaven as static. It's not. It's like an, an unending joy. I gave you those quotes from Beatrice with the um, Griffin and the quote um, by Cleopatra, remember when she's describing Anthony. It's like the, all the soul's desires are satisfied and set on longing for more. And since God is infinite, there will be an infinite satisfying and an infinite longing for more, a greater joy. So it's a, Dante doesn't see heaven as a static thing. And you remember it ends with Beatrice giving Dante to Benedict and Benedict offering his prayers to Mary um, because she, she's the one most directly related to Christ. It was from her that he came into the world. She nurtured him. It was to her and Joseph that he gave obedience. Remember the temple scene when they go back and find him and Mary's upset with him and it, the last description is they, they went off and he... He gave obedience to his parents. Um, it ends with um, Benedict offering a prayer to Mary, and Dante is given the grace to see the Trinity. And the great question that he had going into that moment is, how will he square the Father and the Spirit, who are infinite in nature, with the Son, who now has a human nature? And that's a mystery beyond... Are telling, except we know, the, in, the interesting thing about the Divine Comedy is, by that time we've learned to think in terms that go beyond the laws of time and space, right? I mean, that, that's a fundamental to everything in the, we've learned that there's other ways of seeing beyond those defined in terms of time and space. So by the time we get to the Trinity, we should be prepared to at least be aware that there's this extraordinary thing there that's awaiting even if Dante can't find the words to describe it. And that's when he stops and says, he turns to that image that, with which he ends each of the canticles, the Inferno, the Purgatory, the Paradiso, um, of the stars revolving around the universe. So he's returning, returning to the world to write the story. And remember, his, that's his calling. He learns from Cacciaguida. He has a call. As a poet, he has to write down everything, even if it's going to upset people. Even if they don't like him, if they squirm, it does not matter. He has got to tell the truth, even though people are going to be offended. That's his call. So he returns to sit down and write the work that, that we've been given. So that's a, 
a brief summary. Any any comments about Dante before we leave him and go on to Chaucer? Any questions or comments? Glad to hear them. Uh, I'll comment. Um, I taught my last catechism class on Sunday. I did come back up to teach, and I teach fourth and fifth graders. And the lesson was about heaven, hell, and purgatory. So when the kids started asking me, you know, what do our souls look like in heaven? And all those questions about purgatory and hell that come up, I'm yeah. like, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I just read this wonderful book by a man named Dante. So I described to them, like, our souls were shining like lights. And yeah. stuff, and really good. Yeah, I'm glad. What was their response, Melody? What? Uh, oh, wait, you know, let, let me, sorry, let me start. Let me put that differently. If you had not said that, what do you think they would have been left with? And because you did say that, what would have been the difference for them? Can you speak to that at all? I know that's a hypothetical, but... Well, um, I've always just been able to say, I'm not sure. And as soon as we go to heaven, that's when we'll find out. And we don't want to go to hell to find out what they're dealing with. But, it, it, you know, it was always just a guess yeah. and this kind of gave me more of I hate to say an educated guess but more of a background to be able to say this is what you know the Catholic Church teaches us and this writer was closely related to that so it was just fun to be able to talk about like purgatory you know through Dante would explain to us it's not God keeping them in purgatory it's people actually wanting to take their time and work through their problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was really a great insight that I had never been able to yeah, share before. I'm glad. I don't know why you'd say, what'd you say? I hate to say it this would you uneducated. I was glad that you put that educated spin on it myself. Just um, <laughs> anybody else? It's good. I mean it's good to do Dante. You know it you know I, you know Francis asked the whole Catholic world to read it and I don't, I mean I guess the, the number of people who read it is really small but it, it's pretty amazing to go through that because a whole world opens to you that that's theologically sound it's you know theology is not a, in America we tend to dismiss things you know I mean really badly if we, it, and we, we do it with a sense that our own feelings or our own mind that each of us has our own and whatever anybody thinks is okay. We know that's not so because the truth is not relative. People can make up whatever they want. But it's good to go back to a story in which it's, or a story actually experiencing things that's shaped by a strong sense of truth of what our nature is, what we can learn about our nature, what we can say about ourselves, um, the effects of our actions. Because we do have a nature, we can we can anticipate things. We can know when we're doing something wrong or not. The whole modern world has taken all of that away, but um, it's wonderful to go through it because when you come out of Dante, you really do have a sense that we have a nature. We're not angels. We're not beasts. God gave us. We're created in His image. He lo you, 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 You've got to say this because if you don't, you're just stepping into the modern world. He so loved us this creature he made in his image, he so loved us that he sent his son, you know, an immortal part of him, to save us. So, 
the nature he created is not small. When I, you know, when, sometimes when I picture it, I think we've got this image of infinite universes now that just go on forever and ever, and it, and, and it leaves us with the sense that the human being is this little puny thing on this place called Earth. And yet, if you look at the human being in the, in the scheme of this vast multiple universes, the human being is an ex just an extraordinary thing. And the whole modern world explains it away. You know, tries to... So reading Dante, to me, is um, always, a, always a, a source of strength and inspiration. You know, Bob, I think one of the things I like the most about Dante is what you brought out about the character Dante, for me, uh, was that he's, you know, the, uh, the character, you know, this is the only character that we hear about in an epic poem who is such a woebegone creature, you know, he, yes. he, when he gets in a stressful situation, he faints, right. and uh, right. he needs to be helped along the right. way because right. he can't, he can't find his way himself, and uh, when he, he gets, you know, when Virgil turns him over to, uh, to Beatrice, he, you know, she chastises him to no end, and he can't yeah. even look at her because he's so, he's so uh, ashamed, ashamed of yeah. So it's it's really rich to have been to experience somebody a character like that. Yeah. By by the way, I'm so glad you said that, Michael. We're going to turn to Chaucer in a minute, and in Chaucer, I mean, you can't read Chaucer without having fun. I I I'm I'm reluctant to use that term, but I I there's no better term. You're just Chaucer's going to make you feel delight the entire time you're reading him. And he got that partly from Dante. He loved Dante. He loved Dante and he loved Boethius. Those were his, two of his greatest sources. And if you, if you watch Dante and you put him next to the pagan heroes, whom I love, Achille, probably confessing a sin of my own there, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, they're all great, great men. They're such a great pagan dignity. You know, but laugh at them or humble them or... Have a woman scold them? It's, it's you know it's not going to happen. So in Dante you get a you're I mean you're absolutely right, Michael. He's just in two respects. He carries on that epic epic tradition. You all know that now, but he radically radically changes it, transforms it. Um, he becomes the hero. He's not Homer. It's not Homer talking about. He's actually telling his own story because he's showing there's a worth to every human being. Connie underlined that. There's no back row. There's a worth to every human being. Every, every human being matters for God. And every human being is vulnerable and foolish from the perspective of the cross. So there's a great humbling that takes place with Dante. Um, and I say that wanting to reinforce what I said a while ago. That does not mean truth is relative, or you can do whatever you want, because Virgil and Beatrice make tr make clear that's not true. They can shame Dante because there is a truth against which to be measured, you know, oneself. Or so Dante doesn't lose, doesn't give up everything the modern world has given up. It helps make him. It helps 
him to be humbler, to learn, to see, to acknowledge. Um, so it is a very, very different kind of um, hero. And in some way, it seems to me, he sets the stage for the modern hero. Because most modern heroes are have flaws, divided souls. You can pip in Great Expectations, Huckleberry Finn, go where you want. It doesn't matter. Um, James in uh, Lord Jim, you know, Conrad, it just doesn't matter. You can go everywhere. The, in fact, in some ways, it seems to me the modern hero has gone too far because he's, we've, we've become more and more a part of a skeptical world that denies value everywhere. So the modern hero tends to be darker. That's not so in Dante. Dante takes on all of his faults and can make fun of them. Chaucer will too. Chaucer will too in Canterbury Tales. So you really have entered a... Dante broke that. Dante carried the epic forward, but he radically, radically changed our notion of the... of ourselves as human beings. Made it easier for us to laugh at ourselves. Any other... Any other... Karen, I don't recognize you in that room. You've always been in a dining room behind you, but... Um, yeah, our dining room is emptied out right now. Oh. We're going to have work done on texture oh. on the walls tomorrow. So. Ongoing work. Okay, you yeah. guys ready for Chaucer? Chaucer? Let's start. Let's start. I want to I just say on a personal note... I want to say on a personal note, I got it, I got it. Um, I think I've said this before, but just to underscore it, when I when I started graduate school, I, I went to a school in Southern California, and it was a it was a wash. I'm not going to name it, but but I did Chaucer, and I was my first experience of him. I was amazed because. You can't read him without having fun. I, there, I don't think there's another word. It's just a, you feel like you're in the middle of a party. It's just it's it's humorous all the way through. And I could never read any of the scholarship on him, the essays written about his pieces, without realizing that I was in the presence of this sort of pedantic, glum spirit that was so out of touch with Chaucer because Chaucer has this joy. And one of the things he helped me realize then was that. Like Dante, from Dante, anybody holding a Catholic faith should be glad. You know, that's what we learned from Boethius. There, there, there is no bad fortune. What God, God has done this to protect our free will. He's allowed evil in the world to protect our free will. But he's always at work bringing something good out of it. That's, I mean, the measure of that is Christ on the cross. So at the center of our faith should be this joy. And, but we've entered a Puritan world after the science, scientific revolution and the Reformation, particularly the Reformation. Christendom crashed. Um, it was a shipwreck. And I don't think we recovered, but the effects of the Protestant Reformation are still with us. We carry a very Puritan spirit into the modern world. When you read Chaucer, you know he has no qualms about using foul words S-H-I or, you know, or fart or, I mean, there's that funny episode where, the, where they're telling the story about the monks with their rear end against a wheel passing a fart and the fart being divided into 12 parts. <laughs> I, mean, 
<laughs> Where are you going to find that in a modern Puritan word? You're just not going to find it. And um, just on another personal side, I was asked to do the study guide for Angelical Online Program, and they asked me to do Catholic questions at the end of each study guide, whatever, you know, Homer, didn't matter. And so they did it. I think they cut it out because some of the Catholic parents were offended by the language, with, you know, Chaucer's language. They just thought it was awful. So there's this great joy in our physical being. He can be scatological. He, he goes back to Iskola, or I mean, uh, who's the Greek poet that's funny? Not Iskola, but, um, oh gosh. Oh, help me. I'm lost. <laughs> anyway, he, he goes back to the Greek poets with Aristophanes. that. Aristophanes. Aristophanes, thanks, Doc. Aristophanes. Scatological, you know, foul words, um, but, but with this sense of joy. There is not a sin, there is not a spiritual sin that, that Chaucer looks at that he doesn't find some humor in. Because, and we're so, we're so judgmental, we're so quick to judge and condemn. You know, what Faulkner is doing is... is or, sorry, Chaucer, got to keep doing that. He's, he's presenting us a world through a faith just before the modern world takes place. So one of the reasons I so enjoy him is he, for me, takes us back to a Catholic world before that, that shipwreck took place to show us um, a faith and a, a spirit of Boethius kept alive. One of the questions I'm going to have for you guys today, I, I wish I could give you guys a quiz because I think it's going to knock you over. You can't read Chaucer without finding the word fortune every ten lines. I mean, it, it's just, it, that's just a word he constantly uses because that's an accurate description of the world. We use the word contingency today. But the difference between Chaucer and us is that for us, and I want everybody to hold on to this because this is going to go to every one of the stories we read. In our world, we think if we can only do certain things, we'll be happy. Put on seat belts, get insurance, change the social structure. If we only do all these things, man will be happy. What we're doing is leveraging the world, ransoming the world against an ideal, a Puritan ideal we have in our heads. It's not what he is. It's if we can only do this, if we can change this, everybody would be happy. Now hold on to that because when we get to the Knight's Tale, it seems to me we're going to have one of the sharpest critiques of that way of looking at the world that I've ever read in my life. That's how important the Knight's Tale is to me. So in Chaucer we're reading, we're reading a, a man who had the humor of Dante, but who takes it everywhere. He doesn't confine it to hell. It's a humor we will find in every story he writes. Even, even the story that he writes when he has to step forward as one of the pilgrims and tell his own story, and he keeps tripping over himself. He can't tell a story well. Just, he's having fun with himself. Okay, with those two thoughts. Um, Chaucer was born in 1342. He died in 1400, so he's 200 years before Shakespeare. He was a page in the court of Duke Lancaster, of John of Gaunt. He went to war against France during the Hundred Years' War. And if, I mean, some of you should look that out, those, those of you who are interested in that sort of thing. The Hundred Years' War was a war between England and France 
over the question of who should rule France because um, the dynasties of both nations went back um, centuries and England had a claim on the French throne. So they pressed that claim and the result of that conflict was um, wars that went on for a, over a hundred years. And Chaucer went to those wars. By the way, it was in those wars that Joan of Arc received her visions from God and was told, um, do not let the English take this land. And it was her inspiration that helped the French troops turn the war against the English. That reclaimed some of the lands that the English had taken. He was ransomed once he was captured and returned to England. Um, so he, he, he knew court life, he knew war, he experienced all of that. Um, that's part of his background. The story is set um, um, at, at his time, but what's taking place is a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. Thomas Becket. And we know that um, St. Thomas is martyred, that the, that the king of England at that time was doing everything he can to increase his control over the clergy. It's an ongoing problem, ongoing problem. And um, the king and Thomas were f on friendly terms until the king pressed his suit too hard and Thomas pulled back and he seemed to pull back in a way that showed he had a conversion of his own and became more conscious of the call of the church and he resisted um, the king and the king had said, this is the alleged report that the king had said something and some of the men in court had heard it and took it as an invitation to kill St. Thomas. It's, it's a serious question in my mind whether the king didn't make that request openly. I don't know. We don't know. But, but um, several men set off to assassinate Thomas Becket and they do. And by the way, we did this in um, Francis. The, the, the great work on that is by T.S. Eliot card called Murder in the Cathedral. You should read it. It's one of the finest works on martyrdom that I know. And if you do read it, um, go online and listen to the audios because you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear us getting to things in the book that I, I don't think ordinary readers tend to get to. But it's a profound book. It's, it's a short play. It's about the death, the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett. But um, in any case, the, the pilgrims have gathered together to set off on this pilgrimage. Um, one of the important things to see here is that this precedes the Reformation. So Chaucer is showing us the world united, absolutely united. There are no religious divisions here. Um, they're all of one nation. He shows every rank, every, every field. You know. His greatest criticisms are reserved not for the church. It's for the church members. And I want to emphasize this. In the Reformation, you've got Reformation thinkers who wanted to change the theology of the church. This is absolutely crucial. They wanted to change the theology of the church because of the church corruptions. The corruptions didn't rest in the theology. The theology was sound. You, you can't fool around with it. Those are unchanging truths. They can be developed in time, but you can't change them. All the reformers changed them. Um, Chaucer does not fool around with theology, but he is very, very critical of church members, particularly the men. And um, we, he doesn't present a church member who isn't fundamentally corrupted. So he's very much like Dante. He's showing you the, 
sometimes the last person you want to trust in the world is a priest. Um, so he has a very sharp critical eye. Um, one of the things that I came out of our last reading at St. Francis, because I had not read Chaucer in, I don't know, 25 years, um, and I'll share this with you, I think you'll see it. We had done Shakespeare at that time when we were doing Chaucer, and it suddenly struck me in a way that had never before, that there are very few, very few really good men in Shakespeare. And by the way, I don't want to put tragic heroes in that class because I think all of Shakespeare's tragic heroes are great men. But they, but they all have to go through a recognition, a turn. Lear, Hamlet, all of them. Coriolanus, um, um, all of them. They're good men. But men in general in Shakespeare's plays are scoundrels. Absolute scoundrels. The male ego gets in the way everywhere. Everywhere. And women want to step into the shoes of men today? It's making them scoundrels. Um, women are becoming scoundrels today. There are, there are all the men in Shakespeare are scoundrels. All the men in Chaucer are scoundrels. The only good figures in Chaucer's world are women. And some of them are not good. So this is medieval Christendom at its height. Chaucer is going to laugh at everybody, um, but he's showing us almost everybody has faults. It doesn't make them despicable. He laughs at them. In fact, I think one of the great qualities of Chaucer is he helps us to laugh at each other's faults instead of condemning them. He helps us bring a charity to the way that we look at each other, which is so badly lacking in our world. So he's laying the world open. It's a united England. They're all in this pilgrimage. So there's a religious dimension to the quest. They're on a pilgrimage. They meet at the Tabard Inn, and the, and the host, and we'll get to this in a second, the host agrees to lead them with the understanding that they will tell two stories on the way to the shrine and two stories back, and whoever tells the best story will, um, will be celebrated with a free meal. And if anybody violates, this is how serious laws are. This is like Dante's purgatory. You don't break laws. The host makes it clear if they break laws, whoever breaks them has to pay for the whole thing. So there are consequences to what they do. Um, so that's the sort of general background of the, of the Canterbury Tales. Boethius is everywhere in the story. Okay. Now, let me... And I did not do this. Hold on. Hold on for a minute, you guys. Sorry. Hold on. God bless it. Hold on. I'll be right back. Um, boy, what am I? Um, last, I wrote you a note earlier today and, and, oh no, uh oh, sorry you guys, um, um, asked you to take a look at the, uh, at the notes that I downloaded, I, that I put in our class, um, um, Two of the files, 
were um, of Chaucer's Middle English. And I, I think I read this to you before, but I want to read it again. But if you go to the files, you'll see under Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales, I've given two copies. One is um, of the uh, opening lines of the general prologue, and the, and the other is, that's it, Doug. The other is um, a copy from the Knight's Tale of the original medieval English and a translation of it in, in a modern idiom. But I want to just read the, um, if you can open your text to the opening of the, in the um, Canterbury Tales, I want to read the Middle English so you can hear it and set it against Coghill's translation. By, Coghill's translation is just extraordinary. He, he's done the world a service by what he did. But you'll hear the difference and you'll, and you'll see how close our language is to his and yet how different it is. So if you'll turn to the opening of the Canterbury Tales, I'll read it. This is what Chaucer would sound like, or something like that. I mean, I'm, I'm not a medievalist, but I did some work in medieval English. Um, but I just wanted to give you some sense of what it sounds like. So these are the opening lines. Huandare sud, the droch of match has pierced to the root, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur of which virtue engendered is the flora. One's avarice eager with his sweater breath inspired heart in every hold and hater the tundra croppers in the young sonna, but in the rama his halva cours irona. In smaller fowlies make in melodia that sleep in all the nick with open yea. So pricketh him natura in her courages than longing folk to goon on pilgrimages. And pomeres for to seek in strands, thrones to fair and halways Cuta in sundry londes, and specially from every shutter's end of Engelonda to Canterbury they wender. The holy blissful martyr for to seek her, that him hath hopen, one that they were seke. Befell that in that season on a day, in Southwark out the Talbert as he lay, ready to wander on my pilgrimages. And he goes on. It would be something like that. It would sound a little bit like that, um, just to give you a sense. And, and you know that our, our, so I'll read the English now, just a, the opening that we have is, When in April the sweet showers fall, and spierce the draught of March to the root and all, the veins are bathed in liquor of such power as brings about the engendering of the flower. When also Zephyrus with his sweet breath exhales an air in every grove and heath, Upon the tender shoots and the young sun, his half course and the sign of the ram has run. And the small fowl are making melody that sleep away the night with open eye. So nature pricks them and their heart engages, and people long to go on pilgrimages, pilgrimages, and palmers long to seek the stranger strands. It goes on like that, but Okay. Um Here, I want to, before we start, I want to just take us to our, our general prologue. And um, you know that what happens is that Chaucer himself is telling the story. So he's a narrator, like Dante. He's telling a story of what took place, right? He's exactly like Dante. This pilgrimage took place, he's recounting it, 
except, he, like Dante, he's giving us this pilgrimage in poetry. So he's giving to it a loveliness that we presume it didn't have. But as a matter of fact, when he relates the stories, you know that all the stories are going to be told in poetry, except his own. And when we, I, I want to look at that when we get there. But Chaucer's going to be po be poking, um, be poking a lot of fun at himself. Anyway, what what we get is um, a thumbnail sketch of each of the pilgrims, pilgrims on the, you know, who are who make up the company. There are, I think, thirty. I think there were originally more than that, and he describes each one so that we get a sense of that person who will tell the tale when we get to it. We also get a better sense of many of the pilgrimages because when one person turns it over to another, sometimes a pilgrim will tell a story on another. They'll make like the, the I can't remember now, we'll get to it, but the, like the, the monk will tell a story on the summoner or, and um, his tale will enrage the summoner and the summoner will want to tell the story to get back. So we can see an envy and a spite and an anger working between the men that we get between the stories. So in lots of ways, Chaucer fills out this character's thumbnail sketch that we get in the beginning. But I want to turn to the very end just so you get a sense of what's going on. So if you can turn to the end of the general prologue before we get to the Night's Tale. Um, On my page 40, I'm, I'm, if you've got a new copy, it, it's probably going to be a different page, but it's just before the Knight's Tale. Um, we get this. This is the point. I'll make it short and plain. Each one of you shall help to make things slip by telling two stories on the outward trip to Canterbury. That's what I intend. And on the homeward way to journey's end, another two tales from the days of old. And then the man whose stories best told that is to say, who gives the fullest pleasure of good morality and general pleasure. That is an absolute principle from what critics would call, I think, the Horatian school, that the aim of literature, this is what we inherited, and Chaucer's making it real, the aim of literature is to please and instruct. It's to give a delight and to help us see something. So it's teaching and um, and giving us the pleasure while we're being taught. Of good morality and general pleasure, he shall be given a supper paid by all here in this tavern, in this very hall, when we come back again from Canterbury. And in the hope to keep you bright and merry, I'll go along with you myself and ride, all at my own expense, and serve as guide. I'll be the judge, and those who won't obey shall pay for what we spend upon the way. Now, I, I'm not going to get to it now, but I hope you can hear that Chaucer's poetry unfolds in couplets, rhyme called, it's called heroic couplets. Heroic couplets are couples that rhyme, A, A, B, B, C, C, right? Now, lots of teachers, this is stunning to me, lots of teachers who have not read Boethius are going to say, it's just dressing, it's window dressing, okay, window dressing. Now, hold on to that. Because I had a realization, I think sometime in recent years, that that's not true. And I think I only came to it because of the work we did at St. Francis, St. Francis, because we'd just done Boethius, and suddenly it knocked me over. But I hope you hear all that, okay? Um, at the very end of the prologue, um, immediately the draw for lots began, and to tell shortly how the matter went, 
whether by chance or fate or accident, the truth is this, the cut fell to the night. Accidents, chance, fortune is, is going to be probably the most governing theme running through the whole of the Canterbury Tales. Things happen by chance. And here, let me put it even more darkly if I can. You know that when Christ, just before miracles, was after the feeding of 5,000, just after he performed this extraordinary miracles, his disciples said, what? Show us a sign. <laughs> Give us a sign. He said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. The disciples wanted to reduce a miracle to a rational grasp, as if it would give them a measure of control, a sign. The tendency of the human intellect is to, is to want to get control of something. Give it a sign. You can, you know, hold on. He had just performed a miracle. He, I mean, Eucharist and all of that are, you know, part of what he did. And the disciples weren't getting it. They just didn't quite get it. Um, so he says, whether by chance or fate or accident, the truth is it, cut, it, it fell to the night. That's, I mean, we, we're supposed to see that as an accident. That's not an accident. The knight starts this because he's the noblest figure of the company. And what we're going to see in the first four or five stories, we'll see this next week when we come together again, is that um, the first four or five stories have to do with honor and knighthood and chivalry and the violating of those ideals. So it's no accident. He's starting it off with with the very best possible for us as human beings. So the night starts, and you know that he tells the story of the um, Theseus, who is the founder of Western civilization. I, we, I don't think we did Midsummer Night's Dream, and I'm sorry we didn't, because Shakespeare's dealing with that same theme then. Theseus is the central figure of Midsummer Night's Dream. Here, 200 years earlier, Chaucer is doing it. Theseus is the founder of Western civilization, in literary terms. And so, in taking us back to Theseus, Chaucer is taking us back to his founding. Um, but I'm going to argue, and I, I hope it'll become clear. If not, we'll see what questions you have. He's, he's Christianizing it. He's taking us back to a founding and showing something that the pagans could not have known. So he's rewriting history. He's doing what we learned every ancient poet did. Homer rewrites the Iliad in the Odyssey. Virgil rewrites Homer. What does Dante do? He writes, rewrites Virgil. It's been one of our central themes that every great poet carries the past forward and redeems it as he goes. Yeah? It's one of our most important things. Here, Chaucer's going back to Theseus. Okay? He has just conquered the Amazons. He's conquered Hippolyta by force. Because remember, the Amazons are that group who want nothing to do with men. They have this instinctive hatred of men. They band together as women. The Amazons are always with us. They're Amazons today. Their allegiance is to each other. They do not like men. That's a starting point. So they're warriors. They fight against them. So one of the, one of the things that led to the founding is, is Theseus conquering the Amazons. He conquers Hippolytus, it's a great warrior, and they marry, and a lot is made of that marriage. On his way back to Athens, he meets this company of women 
who, um, who are mourning their loss at Thebes um, and ask them to help them because all of their husbands have been killed by these wars in Thebes. So in response to the mourning of the grieving of these women, um, Theseus turns and goes to Thebes and conquers Creon, who is the king of Thebes. We know that from um, the Oedipus story, the Oedipus trilogy. He conquers Creon and Thebes. So his first two acts is to conquer the Amazons, the feminine, and the noble. Because Thebes was one of the noble cities. One of the things that set Athens apart was that it, it, it did not rest on this distinction between the nobles and the lower class. That Athens was a democracy, that all people had an equal place. So the founding of Athens, it rested on um, doing away with those distinctions between hierarchies, male, female, tribal. Um, on page 45, um, he would take vengeance on this tyrant king, this Cree, until the land of Greece should ring with how he had encountered him and served the, monst the monster with the death he deserved instantly then, and with mo no more delay, he turned and with his banners display made off for Thebes with his host beside. He goes, defeats them. He takes two men captive, Palamon and Arcite. Now, it's really crucial to see this. Both of them derive from a noble city. Because, like, um, God, I wish we'd, had we done that, Argos? Did, we didn't do the, we didn't do the Orstein, did we? No, we didn't in this class. In the two great trilogies of the ancient world, Sophocles, the Oedipus trilogy, and the Oresteia, um, you've got an action that begins with a noble city, um, Tyre or Thebes, and moving to Athens. The shift that's taking place is towards a democracy, that something is coming into being in Athens that never existed before, not in the East because the East is too tribal, not with Amazons because they make women... Um, the, the identity of women based on hating men. So Athens was was founded um, on the basis of a new kind of man. You can't find a regime like that in the East. You can't find it in the West. So Athens represents the coming into being really of Western civilization. That's some new sense of freedom of hum, human possibilities began then. So his first two actions in this story are defeating the Amazons and defeating Crea and the tyrant, the city that rests on this, on this sense of some, some people are more noble than others. And he takes two captives, and both of them belong to the noble class. They are aristocratic at heart. Okay. Um, now here's where the story turns. Palamon on her seat are in jail in the tower and Palamon looks out in the tower and he sees Hippolyta's sister, Emily. Remember, Hippolyta was the Amazon queen. Theseus um, defeated her and brought her and her sister, Emily, back to Athens. Um, Emily's now, or I mean, uh, um, Hippolyta's married. Emily's the sister. She's unmarried. She is walking in the garden. Palamon looks out the window and he sees this beautiful woman. Page 50. Um... This was our oath, and nothing can untie it. 
and well I know you dare not deny it. I trust you with my secrets, make no doubt. You would treacherously go about to love my lady, whom I love and serve, and ever shall, till death cut my heart's nerve. No faults are seat that you shall never do. I loved her first and told my grief to you. He looks out at Emily and immediately is stricken by her. Um, this is the page. Um, and then Arcit looks at her and he declares his love for her. And these two men who were cousins, who were fast friends, belonging to the royal family, noble, now fight each other. What we're seeing is the pride that's inherent in that sense of nobility. That these two men who were related and, and a part of the same family are now bitter enemies. Um, as to the brother and friend that swore to further me, as I have said before, so you are bound in honor as a knight to help me, should, I, should it lie within your might? Else you are false, I say your honor vain. Arcita proudly answered back again, you shall be judged as false, he said, not me. And false you are, I tell you utterly. I loved her as a woman before you. What can you say? Just now you hardly knew if she were girl or goddess. Yours is a mystical, a holy love. It's so crucial to see the difference here. Yours is a mystical, a holy love, and mine is a love as a human being. So I told you at the moment, seeing you were my cousin, sworn friend. Um, so the two become bitter enemies. Now what unfolds is that a friend of Theseus comes to visit, and he's a friend of Arcetes, and asks Theseus if he will release Arcetes. So he does. So Arcetes is released and um, is allowed to go back to... Um, Thebes with the understanding that he never come back to Athens at pain of death if he does. Okay. Um, page 53. Now, this is the situation and it's, it's crucial to the whole story. To me it's amazing. Palamon's in the tower. He can see Emily. is now out. So he's freed. He's not in prison anymore. Um, on page 53, How eagerly we seek felicity, yet so often wrong in what we try. Yes, we can say that, and so can I, in whom the foolish notion has arisen, that if I only could escape from prison, I should be well in pure beatitude, whereas I am in exile from my good, for since I may not see you, Emily, I am but dead, and there's no remedy. So he wanted to be out, now he's out, but he can't see Emily. Palamon's in jail. He wants to be where a seat is because he thinks if he's out, he'll be happy he can pursue her. The bottom of 53. Now, on the other hand, poor Palamon, when it was told him that our seat had gone, fell in such grief the tower where he was kept resounded to his yowling as he wept. The very fetters on his mighty shins shine with all his bitter tears as he begins. Alas, our seat, dear cousin, <laughs> In our dispute and rivalry, God knows you have the fruit. I see you now in Thebes, our neighbor's city, as free as air, with never a thought of pity. Oh, sorry, wait. Pity for me. You, an astute, determined man, can soon assemble all our folk and clan. For war in Athens make a sharp advance, and by some treaty, or perhaps by chance, she may become your lady and your wife, for whom needs must I here shall lose my life. For in the way of possibility, as you're a prisoner no more, but free, a prince, you have the advantage to engage in your affair. I perish in a cage. Now what happens, you know, is that 
R.C. takes on a disguise. He conceives this plan. He takes on a disguise to become a page in Emily's court. So he's around and he's preparing to try to do something to her, but at least he's in her presence. One day he was, when he's out in the forest, this is years later, Palamon happens to escape. I think it's after he's been in prison for, I think, seven years. And he overhears our seat in the forest and he realizes this is his enemy and the two start to fight. And they agree together to put off the fight until next day when they can prepare themselves. So what we have here um, is this. Um, if I can hold on for one second. Oops, where's the third part? Sorry. My goodness, sorry, you guys. Um, no, sorry. Um, we've got an image of courtly, what's called in, in the literary traditions, courtly romance. Amour courtois, courtly romance. In the courtly romance tradition, which was one of the defining traditions of the Christian Middle Ages, um, a knight would declare his love for a woman. Very often she was married. He would woo her as a king. He would call her liege, sovereign. He vowed to give his life. So, in a sense, it made an opening for divorce, and what it made clear is that while marriage was the established custom, courtly romance was um, the context in which it, that marriage took place because it was understood that marriage could not satisfy all the lusts of a man. So in courtly romance, he would go outside of the marriage to woo this woman. Now remember, when Dante's Divine Comedy opened in, in the Inferno, the first scene that we read was in the context of courtly romance. Francisco and Paolo were doing what? They were reading a story about Lancelot and Guinevere which is the epitome of the courtly romance tradition. And what did they do? And that afternoon, um, they read no more. And it's when they're caught by the husband, remember, that they go to hell. So Chaucer, Dante himself is critiquing the courtly romance tradition. Okay? Now you've got two knights can, um, willing to kill each other for the sake of this woman. Um, they meet the next day and they're fighting, and Theseus just, chance again, fortune, happens to be out in a hut and comes across them and, and finds them. And remember now at this point, they owe their life to him. So in strict justice, here's this theme of justice and mercy. In strict justice, they should be executed. Arcita should not be there. He was let free on the condition that he never come back. Palamon, Palamon's escaped from prison, right? Where is Complex? Where is. Okay, sorry, go to find. Yeah, here. Um, now, let me. Here, let me end with this statement. This is the very end of part one. Um, the lovers are separated. 
Arceta has been set free, Palamon's in the prison. This is all before this conflict takes place between the two men. Part one ends with this um, paragraph. You lovers, here's a question I would offer. So <coughs> Chaucer or the knight is asking this question of his audience. Arcite or Palamon, which had the most to suffer? The one can see his lady day by day, but he must dwell in prison, locked away. The other's free, the world lies all before, but never shall he see his lady more. Judge as you please between them, you that can, for I'll tell you on my life as I began. Now we'll get the story of what happens with Arcite. He goes to Thebes, comes back, Palamon escapes, and the two men will fight. The, the third section will deal with Theseus creating this great arena in which the contest, the joust between these two knights to win the lady will take place. Now that's the summary up till up through the first three parts. Is everybody clear on that? Okay? The fourth part will deal with the joust itself when Arcide and Palamon with their hundred knights will engage in this communal joust, and the winner will have Emily in marriage. Okay? So that's the story. But I want to stop here, because this to me is crucial. How do you answer Chaucer's question? You lovers, here's a question I would offer our Cedar Palamon, which had more to suffer. One's in jail, who can see his beloved, the other's out, who can't. The one in jail wants to be where Palamon wants to be where Arcita is, outside. Arcita wants to be back in jail, in prison, so he can see her. Is that clear? Here's my question. What is Chaucer teaching us about love, about love itself and its relation to freedom? One thinks he wants to be free so he can pursue his love, and the one who is free wants to be back in prison Chaucer's, I think, showing us a profound truth about the nature of love and freedom. So, how would you answer Chaucer's question here? Our cedar pollen, which had most to suffer? That's the obvious question. My question is, what do we learn about love and its relation to freedom? But let's take the first one. Who had most to suffer? How would you guys answer that question? Palamon, who's in jail, who can't do anything, or Arcita, who's free, who's at least in disguise and around Emily, even though he's not supposed to be. The question isn't about Palamon being around Emily in disguise. The question is Palamon in exile. He can't even see Arcita her. Arcita in exile. Or Arcita in exile. Yeah. So, once in exile and can't see her, but he has his freedom. Well, he can. He's he's put on the skies and he's the page. Well, term. but that's not Chaucer's question. I well, but I want to make it here. I just take my question because the, the basic question is right now as the plot unfolds, he's asking this question, but it's going to go on. Our seat's going to come back. You've got two men defined in terms of a prison. One's in prison, lamenting he wants to be out, and one's out and pursuing it. He wants to be back. So I, I think what Chaucer's, I mean, you can take this question, who's suffering more? I'd like to take that up, honestly. But I'd also like to ask, I think, the question that the whole 
story goes to, and that is, what's the nature of love and man's freedom? The, the way we approach love, what is Chaucer showing us? I know that's abstract. I'm not sure that I can make it any more concrete. It's, uh, it seems like the the the, uh, the way that the love the love that the two characters are expressing is a desire to possess, uh, and so neither of them are can achieve any satisfaction because because you know the one is is free but can't can't by law return to Athens and. The other uh, is is in prison by law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike, can you can you? Uh, yeah, you're right. Um, what can you say? Love should be then, if, in in that context. I mean, if you if your response to this, there's something wrong with both men because there's something possessive about their love. What should be their response to Emily? I'm I'm not sure if that's the right question, but. Uh, I mean, in a sense, when we love another person, we do want to possess them in the sense that we want to we want to be close to them. But <clears throat> there, uh, that kind of love is not displayed in the first part of this story. It's it's a, it's simple, simply a desire to possess the person. Uh, but uh, but they're both chained by that by that desire. Neither of them can have freedom because uh, the most important thing to them is to possess another person. Yeah. I'd, I'd like everybody to just consider this too. Although the prison is, the tower is real, it's an actual reality in the story, it's also an image of something keeping them from experiencing what they would like to think would be a freely given love. Palma thinks if he were outside, free, he could love her. Our seat believes if he were inside, imprisoned, he could love her. So what's at issue is this notion of freedom and what's in the way of fulfilling this love. I think Mike. I think Mike's right that there's something possessive about it, but it, is there anything we can add to that? that um, one of the things that Chaucer's showing us is that um, love is awakened in men. This has been true since the Iliad and the Odyssey. Love is awakened in men by the beauty of a woman. The beauty can be overwhelming. Remember, Odysseus was on Calypso's island for eight years. He was on Circe's island for nine. That's nine of the ten years that he was away was under the power of a woman. So the, the a, attraction a woman has for a man is not small. It's never been small. We've been talking about this for the beginning. So Chaucer's returning us to this theme both of these men are in a tower. They look out a window and see the beauty of this woman and are captivated. They fight each other. They were friends. Now they're enemies. In fact, in the scene that you know I just took us to in the forest, they're ready to kill each other when Theseus... They're bludgeoning each other. It's only because Theseus comes along that they don't kill each other. So what's Chaucer showing us about love here in relation to freedom... What is the answer? I think what you just said is that both the men feel captivated uh, or imprisoned 
by love, even though it's hard for me to say that because you can't be in love with somebody you haven't even met yet. They aren't, haven't even spoken about Emily and her feelings. Um, so this whole story is a little bizarre to me that they're fighting with each other and that all they've done is seen this woman. But I think if Chaucer is trying to show that men are imprisoned just by the sight of a woman's beauty, um, that's just crazy. But that, I mean, that, that would be why they are feeling that way, I guess. Let me, if I can, I'm going to give myself away here in a way that makes me nervous right now. Um, you know, if you read Jane Austen, it doesn't matter. It, it does not matter. You remember, let me, let me try to stay as distant from myself as I can here for a moment, but it, this is going to be a struggle. I, um, you know how much literature means to me because of what it reveals. Um, Odysseus is on Calypso's Island for eight years and a year. And if you remember my argument is that um, Odysseus and Penelope cannot have the marriage that they end up finally having at the end. And it's different from Nestor's and Menelaus's marriages. That, that the marriage is at the center of the Odyssey. I, I'm so glad. I mean, I, I could not say this in another class because I couldn't trust that all you know, students in the class would have read the Iliad Odyssey. You guys have. My argument was that Odysseus could not have the marriage he has with Penelope. He couldn't have had it if he'd come home 20 years earlier, 15 years earlier. His marriage is different from the marriage of, of um, Nestor and Menelaus because he's learned things about himself. And one of the things he had to learn, this was my argument, he had to learn to order his loves to be lawful because until he did, he would be captivated by the beauty of Penelope, just like the suitors. So the defeat of the suitors, in some way symbolically, represents the defeat of a man of all those lusts that are aroused by the beauty of a woman. I don't want to downplay that, Melon, because I think it's powerful, and I, I think marriages and divorces in our country forever, you know, illustrate it. A man can be taken by his wife. It, it may take a man 10 years before he gets free of that in a marriage. So it's not just that he's captivated by appearances, it's that Often, I mean, remember, this is Dante's argument with, with the siren. Remember that when Dante looks at the siren, remember he awakens that voice? He can't free himself. That the struggle for a man to order his emotions towards the woman he loves, this has been one of the central themes of the epic. That struggle is extraordinary. Look at what happens with Dante. When he gets to Beatrice at the top of Mount Purgatory, she takes him apart. So I don't want to minimize this. I think the, the, the struggle to order one soul, and men have been at the focus of this, is essential to the well-being of marriages and the continuity of Western civilization. That's how these poets are doing it. We're seeing it here, so even if we say they've only looked at her, I don't think we need to know more than that, because even if they married her, they still have a... I remember a, a really good marriage taking place six months ago, in which because the, the couple's so devout. I mean, they just are so good. And the priest saying to them, knowing how good they were, this is where the troubles start. You know, you get married. And I'm trusting most people know that, that, that you know, we enter into marriages innocently and we learn to deal with each other's sins and it takes, it takes a lifetime, you know, and, 
And it's one of the, it's one of the reasons I asked for prayers tonight because we're towards the end of things, and I'm grateful for prayers. Um, here, let me go on because hopefully this will take us closer. You know that what happens is that is that the third book is devoted to Chaucer's description of the arena that Theseus builds for this contest, this chivalric joust. The two men are going to fight for the hand of the woman they love. Now remember, these were family, they were close, they had no reasons for problems. They see a woman, that's how strong the desires are potentially in a man for a woman. So the joust takes place, and you remember that um, whoever is put down will retire, and the victor will have Emily's hand. Palamon is defeated, and Arceta is about to, to, he's approaching Emily with the understanding that he will have um, her hand, and the horse hits a hole, um, it's thrown, and Arceta is thrown. Here's fortune again. I mean, go back to the story yourselves and identify all, the, all those circumstances in which Chaucer used the word fortune. Theseus came upon, you know, the couple. It was fortune. The two just happened to me. You can go on and on and on. Because the whole issue is, what does man do with the freedom that he does have, whether he's in a tower or outside, with respect to love? What does a man have to do in order to learn to love the way at least Christ made it possible for man to do? Now, let me try to underline this perspective of a camp for men. Remember, the highest virtue in the ancient world was what? It was justice, not love. Chaucer's focus is justice and mercy and romantic love. Theseus could have killed the two men. They both deserved justice um, done. They would have been executed. It's only because the women plead for their lives that they're spared. But now they have to settle this thing. So Theseus, as a wiser man, makes for this tournament. Okay, And you know that um, Arceta wins. And when he goes to accept um, Emily's hand, um, the horse stumbles and Theseus is thrown. And it's at that... Or, I mean, Arceta. And... Um, and, he, and he's killed. Um, God, hold on. There's that touching scene where our seat, God, our seat gives um, Emily to Palamon. It's a, it's a tender scene in which he gives her up. Um, and um, and then funeral services are held for our seat. Now here's where I want to go. If you can all go, um, let me ask before: Is everybody okay with the plot at this point? Any questions about? Okay. At the very end, during the service, these. This funeral service is compared to the funeral service that ends the Iliad. You remember that the Iliad ends with the funeral services given to Hector, this great hero. That's the model. 
Um, the funeral games um, of Patroclus were held before that by Achilles, remember when his dear friend died? And then the Iliad ends with that great, that long lament, okay? Our seat gives Emily over. So here's what happens. Now everybody hold on to this because this is crucial. Palamon's defeated. So he has to give up Emily. Right? Arceta wins, so he has a claim, but he dies. And he gives her up. So both men answer that overwhelming desire they had for that woman by something self-sacrificing. Palamon has to give her up. He does. He's defeated. Arceta dies. He gives her up. So both men give up the woman. And that what takes us into the funeral which closes the story, okay? And here's what we've got at the end. Page 97 in mine. So the knight is describing the funeral, and he says towards the end, but how they made the funeral fires flame, or what the trees by number or by name. By the way, this is, this is a rhetorical use of what we've been calling the apophatic. I've used that term again. Um, getting to something by those things we don't know, the like, where are we in the parking lot? You know, the, this not knowing quite where we are. This is the same thing rhetorically in language. But how they made the funeral fl fires flame, or what the trees by number or by name. Now listen to the rhyme: oak, fir, tree, birch, aspen, and poplar too. Um, Next, an alder, willow, elm, and yew, box, chestnut, plain, ash, laurel, thorn, and lime, beech, hazel, whipple tree. I lack the time to tell you and who felled them, nor can tell how their poor gods ran up and down the dell, all disinherited of heaven. That is, the surrounding area, the hills, the whole group. These I pass over, birds and beasts as well, that fled in terror when the forest fell. Nor shall I say how in the sudden light of the unwanted son that Dell took fright. So he's saying, I can't describe all these things while he's describing them, right? Then in green wood with spice among the stems, and then in cloth of gold with precious gems, he goes on, nor how Arceta lay among it all, nor of the wealth and splendor of his pall, nor yet how Emily thrust in the fire as custom was and lit the funeral pyre. She weeps, the women weep, go down, how Prince Arceta burnt to ashes cold, nor how the wake was held in the delight of funeral games that lasted all the night. What naked wrestler glistening with oil made the best showing, and he goes on. They all went home after the games were done, but shortly to the point, for I intend to bring my long narration to an end. That's that long list, that long description of the funeral. But it's all in terms of the apophatic, what he can't tell. Okay? Now, What's going to happen afterwards is that Theseus will give Emily to Palamon, and they will be married. And Emily will be happy because she, too, had to learn to renounce herself. She had to put away her feelings, whatever her feelings were, just like the two men, for this marriage to take place. And this is the counsel that, so it's not a matter of personal feelings for any of them. The point is they all have to renounce those feelings to get to something else. This is the, the wisdom with which the story ends. It's Theseus explaining what to all present 
what he hopes of everybody from this moment on. The first great cause and mover of all above, this is straight Boethius. You guys already know it, you've read him. The first great cause and mover of all above, when first he made that fairest chain of love, great was the consequent and high the intent. He well knew why he did and what he meant. For in that fairest chain of love he bound fire and air and water and the ground of earth in certain limits. They may not flee. And that same prince and mover then, said he, established this wretched world, appointed ways, seasons, durations, certain length of days, to all that is engendered here below, past which predestined hour none may go. Um, go down. Every part derives from this great whole, whatever it is. We know it's gone. Um... After he describes this, this first mover, the God who creates everything out of love to make things what they are, he ends by saying, Who orders this but Jupiter the king, the prince and cause of all and everything, converting all things back to the source from which they were derived, to which they course? And against this no creature here alive, whatever his degree, may hope to strive. Then hold it wise, for so it seems to me, to make a virtue of necessity, Take in good part what we may not eschew, especially whatever things are due to all of us. His is a foolish soul that rebels against him who guides the whole, and it is honor to a man whose hour strikes in his day of excellence and flower, when he is certain of his own good name and never known in any act of shame. He goes on. But the, the point of this is he says, make a virtue of necessity. Whatever fortune brings... So, the, so to go back to the lovers, remember, each of the lovers approached Emily thinking, if I, could go, if I could only do this, if I could only have this, I would be happy. Both of them, Palamon, if I could only get out, Arceta, if I could only get in, if I could only have things this way, I would be happy. Palamon had to learn to give up his feelings, so did Arceta. Emily, imagine, I mean, she's a proud woman. She belongs to an aristocratic class. She belongs to the Amazons. Imagine how easy it would have been for her, or yeah, to resist the men. She's she's compelled to marry Arcite from the agreement, and she watches this man die for her, and she watches Palamon defeated for her. So she herself has had to learn to put her feelings away for something else. Um, so all three characters s stand in a certain way towards love at the beginning and are changed by everything that happens. And the last word on this thing is Theseus saying, whatever happens to make a virtue, um, thus hold it wise for it seems to me to make a virtue of necessity taken good in what we may not eschew, what we may not change, especially whatever things are due to all of us. This is Boethius. Don't forget that Boethius's consolation began with Boethius being accused of a crime he didn't commit. He was going to die unjustly. Socrates died unjustly. Christ died. Thomas More, I mean, take a look at any of the characters. Achilles went back to the war knowing he would die. So we've been dealing with this question of how important it is to accept a death before humans can realize the good that they're capable of.
So my question here is, what is the meaning of what Theseus is saying, and what does it say about love? What is, this is Chaucer redoing the, Amer the Western myth, the founding of Western civilization. Theseus is the founder. This is not pagan. The great virtue of the pagans was not love. What's at issue here is love and the different ways in which men understand it and misunderstand it and what has to happen in order for a person to love the way Christ did. So, what are your thoughts on what Theseus says and, and the outcome of that joust? Oh, sorry, this is where I was going. Sorry, hold off on that question. Go back to the rhyme scheme, the apophatic. Sorry, this, this is... Here's my question. I'm not going to tell you this, I'm not going to tell you this. To tell you this would be too much. Nor shall I say how in a sudden light, nor how our seat lay, nor how Emily, nor, nor shall I tell how the same through shield and spear, or it goes on, no, I, no, no. Let me ask you this question. Every one of those lines forms a heroic couplet. Right? When you hear that couplet, what's your response that's such a basic question you could ask of a third grader. I'm afraid you're all... When you hear a rhyme, when you, when you take a rhyme, take any of those rhymes, and you, it ends with a sound, and then it picks up, nor how she fainted when they fed the flame, nor what she said or thought, and I shall name none of the jewels that they took and cast into the river when it flamed at last, nor shall I tell how some threw shield and sphere, or what the garments by the burning beer. It goes on and on couplet after couplet. I know this is a basic question, but I have to ask, what's your response to a, a rhyme, a couplet rhyme? When you hear one word, what's your response to the fact that that sound will be picked up again and it'll continue forward? Couplet after couplet after couplet after couplet. I don't know if I can put it in words, Bob. It just it it just uh, makes the uh, expression more uh, more vivid. I mean, other other people have just called it, you know, that the rhyming is sublime. It just it just is. It does. It just it just moves the soul. Chesterton said that, I think, but. Yeah, I mean, God, God. Just, the trouble with Chester, he said a million memorable things, and it's hard to hold on to all of them. I mean, yeah. truly, truly, I just, I just, I can't say enough about Chester. I'm glad you mentioned him. Anybody else on rhyming? When you hear a word and you pick and you hear that sound picked up, I'm, I'm asking you to go to an emotional, basic, primitive. What's your feeling? Your, your feeling when that happens. Hmm? It moves the story forward. You're always... Can you hear Doc? Can you all hear Yes. Me? You're always looking for the next completion of the rhyme. So yeah. you're, you're constantly moving forward, and there is always a completion. Yeah. And then there's another one, and then there's another yeah. one. Um, so you're moving forward, but there's completion as you go along. And isn't, isn't one of the experiences of completion pleasure? When you hear a sound and it's picked up, isn't the natural emotion delight, pleasure? Hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. 
yeah, I love reading the, what's the car story that we read with the, the truck and the little boot truck. I love reading that to the kids because of the rhymes. I, I mean, if the kids hear me reading it, they're going to hear somebody loving that story because I love the rhythms and the rhymes. When you hear a rhyme, it gives a pleasure. It's like it here. This is so profound. It reflects a harmony to things, that there is a fundamental harmony to things. And the fact that it's ongoing, what Suzanne was describing, you know, it moves you forward, means it's always there. It's always present. Yeah? If you walk out the door, here, let, let me put this one. If you walk out the door and you see the beauty of a bumblebee, and you see the beauty of a flower, and you see the beauty of a bird or a tree, and you keep casting around and you keep seeing beauty everywhere, what's your natural conclusion? Life is beautiful. Yeah, like there's got to be some beauty behind it all, and it's there. Let me put this differently. Imagine, this is a funeral. I can't read this without laughing. I can't tell you this, I can't tell you this, I'm not going to tell you this, I'm not going to tell you, all the while. I mean, if you, all of you go home tonight, read it to your spouses. I'm not kidding. Just focus on the funeral scene and read that aloud. I, I can't believe any of you will not feel delight. A guy's died, everybody's weeping. What's Chaucer doing? Rhyming. Here, now watch. Take this nor how she fainted when they fed the flame. What would happen if you took all those rhymes away and described that event? What would be the feeling you'd be left with? Tragedy. Melody, you're shaking your head. What? Say it. What? Well, you would feel sadness because he's describing the scene, but because he's rhyming it, there's a, a pleasure to it. So, yes, I see that. Do you all see? This is, th what it's showing is, this is Boethius, but it's showing a principle orally in sound. Take those rhymes away and we'd be back in the Iliad with the grief over Hector's death. We'd be back in a pagan world. The rhyming is not artificial. Does the modern world have any sense of rhyming? <laughs> the modern world would try to, be, try to get as close to chaos as they can because they believe the world is chaotic. What Chaucer's doing is amazing. You know, he, he's told us this delightful story in rhyme, but the whole point of it is there is this goodness in the world because the original creator was a god of love, delight, joy. He's taking Boethius and rendering it in a story. Is everybody following? I just love that. Take those rhymes, take those rhymes out of the funeral description. The women are weeping. They're going to keep weeping. I mean, they're weeping and we're partly... Do you see, Chaucer is helping us to distance ourselves from our emotions when things are grievous and our natural, our natural emotional response would be to grieve. So he allows for the grieving. He's describing a moment of grief. Everybody's grieving. We will too. But he's also distancing us from it so that we can take a joy because we can, some or, the way Suzanne described, this movement forward in joy of completion, it doesn't stop. It's there. It's like walking out the backyard. I mean, if anybody walked out in the backyard in a, in a bad mood, walk out in the backyard when you've got a bad mood and then look at the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, <laughs> and, and ask yourself what they're, all, what they're all saying to you. If you don't hear them in rhyme, I'm not sure that you're hearing Anyway, um, are you all following? 
So the Knight's Tale is Chaucer's introduction into the into the Canterbury Tales. It will be the first one. It's typical. We're going to be there. If if any of you can read these at night to your spouses, read them aloud. Do it because it's just it's comic. They're just they're delightful to read. It's really interesting that he tells a story of nobility of of knights who are good men, who love whose whose desires are awakened by the beauty of a woman, who have to learn to put their feelings away, and a woman who has to do the same. And the form of the story helps us to do it ourselves. To make to make a virtue of necessity, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we are asked to make a virtue of it. That's Christ. That's Christ. So let me stop. Any any questions or comments? I can't believe. I can't. I must be doing something wrong here. Come on, you guys. No. I can't believe no questions. Okay, I've got a question. Good, good, thank you. Uh, okay, so when they build uh, the arena and they build all the temples to the gods and goddesses, yeah, yeah. I mean, because that confuses yeah. me like it did when when Dante would talk about the gods and goddesses, even though we're talking about God. Um, is it because it's Athens and Thebes and all that stuff, so we see God working even though... The characters themselves are more familiar with the Greek gods and goddesses, I'm so, uh, but we're supposed, we're supposed to see through it. It's a good, really good question, um, Melody. I'm glad you asked it. Um, it's a Christian audience. Um, Shakespeare was going to do this. We we did we just did Lear and Francis, and and in Shakespeare's Lear, Shakespeare goes back 800 years before Christ. I think it's one of the most powerful Christian plays Shakespeare's writing, but he's writing to a, an audience that has become non-Christian. He's, he's in the modern world. Chaucer's on that verge, even in 1400. Um, I think what he's doing, remember Palamon prays to Vina. By the way, um, our seat when he, when, he put, when he puts on a disguise to be um, Emily's page, what's, um, what's his name, Phila? Yeah, it's, it, The name means lover of philo. It's not philomachia, but it's a, it's it's the Greek equivalent of lover of war. Oh. So hold on to these things. So because names meant everything for Chaucer. You know, language meant everything for Chaucer. Think about the two men themselves. When when Palamon Palamon is the first one to see her. Arceta describes his love as too spiritual, that he's, his love is more earthly. So remember, in the Odyssey, we've got Calypso, who is a sort of image of the spiritual side of woman, and um, Circe is the physical. She awakens the physical appetite, so Odysseus has got to learn to deal with those. Um, in Palamon, you've got a, um, an initial response of love that's... Um, Primitive, intuitive. Um, there may be some truth to what Arcita says about him, but in our seat, you've got a response, aware that his cousin has already made. So there's already an element of combativeness because, as a man of honor, as a man of honor, he could have said, "She's yours." 
Neither man will say that. I mean, it goes to Mike's, there's a possessive quality to the love. Neither man will give her up. And if anybody had a rightful claim, it would have been Palamon, but our seat's not going to do. He's going to argue. He says, my love is greater. It's more earthbound. So neither one of them, our seat really was in a position to say, you saw her. But I think what Chaucer's showing us is that that possess that eros that's awakened in the world for us as human beings takes different forms. So we see two different forms of a masculine love of a woman in the two mid. Um, I can't remember the name he took on, if any of you can come up with it, but it's philo something. But when when Chaucer does the third section in the making of the arena, Palamon, remember, prays to Venus. Um, Emily prays to Diana, who's the virgin goddess. That is, she she wants to be left alone. Right. She has the same pride as a woman that the men have. They're all centered in themselves. Our seat's love is her prayer is to Mars, the war god. So Palamon is closer to, I think this goes to the ending. Palamon's love um, is more disinterested than our seats. Our seats has something of a really strong male ego to push this. It, he worships Mars, you know, and he takes on that name. God bless. Well, and he asks Mars if if I can't have her, don't let Palamine have her either. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. And it's phil philostrate. Yeah, philostrate. Philostrate, which, which is um, love of war, love of battle. So we're watching two men. One of them. Even, they're both men, and they've got a possessive love. I'm so glad we're doing this. But there's something in um, Palamon that I think is inherently gentler. There's something in Arceta that's inherently more warlike. Yes. And yet both men are have honor, so they're going to fight each other for the love of this woman. So Chaucer's already making a distinction between the two men, and when they make their prayers, we're, that distinction is becoming clear. Palamon prays to Venus. And it's important to see that these are not Christ. These are like a divine love mediated through something still earthly. So there's still something possessive in these characters. All of them. Palamon, Emily, um, or Seat. It's only when they're brought to a point where they have to renounce those loves that they go beyond to something Christ-like. I think that's why this is such an important... Um, work of the refounding, that what Chaucer's doing is Christianite, bringing in a, he's baptizing a pagan founding. That's why this work is in some ways so important. I think that's why Shakespeare did Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, he, it's a very, very different rendering of the Theseus story, but this is, do you all follow that? Do you all see what Chaucer's doing and why? You know, people read this and say, it's a fun story. It is, but it's also profound. It's also profound. I enjoyed how each of them, uh, after they prayed, saw some sign from their God that said, oh, yes, they have heard me. This is going to happen for me. So I yeah. enjoyed that. No, Melody, follow that up. What is Chaucer doing with that? Why does he do that? What is he saying? Well, it's, I think it's human nature for all of us to pray for something and then look at what, it, what you always say he uses fortune or accident or chance. He uses that so often. So this is no opportunity to... To say, oh, that that lamp falling has um, 
is proof that the gods have heard me and I'm, my prayers are going to be answered. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be. We're all, yeah. We're all probably uh, guilty of that. Sometimes. Yeah, good. I'm, I'm going to be not as nice as you are again. I, no, you. I mean, you know, I've said this before because I think there's something egotistic to so much of what we do, even with God. I'm so glad. I mean, the questions you guys are asking. Is everybody clear on that? Because I'm so glad you went back there. There's something very often in our prayers to God that reveal this ego. And and see this really clearly. It it isn't until this is Plato's argument in the in the in the Republic. It isn't until the just man is crucified, crucified, that we will take away all seeming. Because the tendency of all of us is to want to seem to be good, but there's always something selfish. It's only when we die, you know, that, I mean, it's one of the, I think it's one of the reasons the saints are held up because they gave themselves to a death, you know, gladly. So that it's when human beings actually accept a death, make it a, a part of their lives, that they learn to love the way Christ did. I'm so glad you did that um, because it's, it's just a perfect example of what we're talking about here that there's still something a little bit too earthly to these pagan gods, you know, that they all serve. So we, we tend to look, look for confirmations of what we want um, when each one of us has been asked to die to, so that we can love. God, this stuff is amazing. I know. Any, sorry, you guys were so late. I'm really sorry. Any, this is, I, I, think, I think the Knight's Tale is so important. You obviously know that from my... Um, any, you, you all see what Chaucer's doing, that this is, as funny as it is, he's dealing with something very, very fundamental to who we are as humans. Okay, I'm sorry for the lateness. Connie, you, you be careful on your, if you're still with us, you may, you may have gotten wise and turned off the audio so you could concentrate on your driving. Um, everybody keep Connie in your prayers and the people you pray for. I, I would be really grateful for your prayers for Suzanne and me. We're just, there's nothing grievous. It's, I mean, I, we've all got spiritual, you know, um, but I would be grateful for your prayers. We're getting, we're getting close. You guys are too young, <laughs> some of you, but, um, we will do the next couple of tales. I can't, Miller's and I can't remember, but we'll do the next couple of tales. Enjoy them because they're just, they're just delightful. Okay? You guys have a good week. Melody, um, I, I just think a whole world has changed for you. I know you've moved and, and even though you're moved and probably settled, it, it's still a big thing. So I, um, it just blessings on you and your husband and, you know, the, the, this new turn you're taking in your life. So, okay, you guys, have a good week. We'll, oh, oh. Miller's tale. I can't remember. It's online, and it's I. Okay. I um, I think it. And I, for sure, it's the Millers, and I'm and there's one other. Maybe the Reeves. Okay. I can't remember. Um, what was the thing I wanted? Yes. Um, oh, we will take a break, middle of Chaucer. So we'll do a couple more stories. I'm going to put breaks in here because I just I'm so grateful for Bob's suggestion that we need to work some more breaks in here. Um, so. You guys have a good have a good week, okay? See you in a week. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.
can't die. I got it. I'll get it both. I got this one. 